Everybody was gone. I don't bet like I used to. I used to spend five to six thousand dollars a game. Put on your street ass is getting a divorce. Oh no, if I want to be here, there's a lot of brutes. Bear down. Bears. Hey, Freddy, I'm at the tailgate at Soldier's Field. I wanted to get your song in. I was up all night last uh, night writing it, so uh, uh, thanks for the podcast. Thanks for your time at NAMI. Uh, we're going to miss you greatly. The citizens of Chicago will miss you greatly. And uh, I sit back, relax, and uh, here's your song. Goodbye. Okay. So, uh, goodbye. Hey, hey. All right, boys. Stay close. I'm going to get you guys some shoulder pads and beer. Hey, don't touch that guy. Stay away from him. But then one day she played Janis Joplin. She I am a creative individual. I'm a mother. I'm a therapist. Learning how to manage as I as I get older. Hey, welcome to Nice Recovery. This is Mr. Dr. Science. I am with one of my favorite people in the world. This is Freddie. She also works at NAMI Chicago. She's got an amazing um, life story and experiences over time. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and a lot about uh, what makes us human and what makes us capable of enjoying life on this planet. That's my plan anyway. How does that sound? Sounds wonderful to me. All right. Um, do you want to tell us how breakfast was and let everybody know how amazing it was? Breakfast was amazing. It was fun to make, and we had some really interesting pancakes. We did. And, and like I said, the, the fun part of this is making... You know what I mean? I yeah. get to know people in a different way. I don't, I've never been in a you know, situation like that with you. And then to just have fun with it. And you made the pancake batter. And then it looked a little like... Organs. Organs. Yes. A couple kidneys, a couple livers. It was a, a brain. Lung, a brain. Yeah. Tasty stuff. Yeah. yeah. Really good. Well, what I'm hoping today um, is to find out a little bit about your story. Because I know you're, you grew up here in the city. Did you ever live anywhere else? Um always been here in the city of Chicago. Okay. So I'm really interested to get a little bit of feedback about how that affected your life and your decisions. You mentioned, um, well, we'll get into it during the show, but tell us who you are. Who am I? Yeah. I am a creative individual. I'm a mother. I'm a therapist. I'm an artist. Um, I'm a cosplayer. I'm a geek. And I love eating, I love music, and I like getting to know people and having relationships. Well, I know this side of you, but because I also met you at work, you this has been a really cool thing for me to, to see your personality, because you have yeah. a very serious, intense job. Tell us a little about yes. that. Yeah, so um, at NAMI Chicago, I am the senior manager over clinical operations of the NAMI Chicago helpline. Our helpline um, is similar to a hotline. We're not 24 hours, but we are seven days a week. And we take calls from all over the city and Chicagoland, people who might be in crisis or they're needing emotional support, or maybe they need um, connections to mental health services. Mm. Um, they might need something to support their basic needs. 
And, you know, we're there to help them. But the root of that space is really in relationship and careful listening and understanding a person's story um, and really joining with them as a partner in helping them get to what they need. You know, this is the part about social work or the healing arts that, that fascinates me most is that when I work with people to become um, facilitators in groups, you know, we talk about what's the most important thing about being a facilitator that you know, you know, have all this knowledge about symptomology or whatever it be, or, or what is it? And no one ever says, oh, to be an active listener is the best thing. To develop relationships is the strongest, you know, connection. You know, the ability to connect to people was to do that. So, um, when you said listening, I really want to pinpoint on that because what I, what I generally like to say is the better active listener you are, mm-hmm. and people do the same thing you do, but then they can't describe it maybe like the way I mean it. So I'm interested to hear your definition of that, an yeah. active listener. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that makes it unique in, in the helpline space is because everything is telephonic. So, you know, as a clinician, mm. I've been taught certain ways of listening, including eye contact as a part of that and body language as a part of that. Um, and that's not so present when it comes to doing something telephonic. Um, but I think also it's, it's a very intimate space to be on the phone with someone. And when you're sharing that space and you're not getting the same sort of input that you might get in person, There are other things that happen in that space Mm. to have to make up for what you don't have. And that allows you to sort of like break down some of the conditioned barriers that Mm. we're taught to have as clinicians. And we have to sort of get real with our internal selves. And in order to manage that space, we have to know what we're listening to. And so listening to someone isn't so much just about what we have to do about ourselves, but Mm -hmm. really listening to what a person is not only saying, but what it means for them to say it, what it means to be in that space and honoring that Mm -hmm. and respecting that, Mm -hmm. not imparting our own values in that space Mm -hmm. um, while we're managing what we're experiencing from that on our end as the call taker. So when you're listening to somebody, instead of being in front of them, you're cueing in on, when I say active listening, active means to me, you can always listen, but to be active means that you're, you're ingesting it, ingesting it so that yeah. you can pick up, like you said, tone, because you can still do that mm-hmm. on the phone. You pick up certain phrases that come over and over, certain words. Yes, it's, and it's also like listening to breath. And it's, you know, listening to when they say something, like the timing of it and um, how it relates to the content of what they're saying. Mm. You know, you sort of like picture the story that they're sharing with you and understanding, you know, where in time and space that is and how it's impacting what may be coming up. So we might hear a shift in breath. We might even hear, you know, sort of a shift in how they're holding the phone. And those are things that, you know, we have to, you know, put together as a part of what may be happening in that moment. You know, what I love about that, what what you just said, and what I love about 
working on, on my skills to be an active listener is it just you actually put yourself in that spot. You're like thinking how that how this the way the story is told is so vital because it, it says so much. And the reason I love this so much is because it's not social work. It's for human beings. It's for right. me with, you know, who I'm going out with or who I have gone out with and realizing what what is being said. The more I invest in listening, the better person I am. Yes. And the more I get out of it. So there's, and you know, there's been times in my life, certainly the very first, I don't know how long, where that, it was all about me. Mm. Because I think as children, it is basically about how we react and interact with the world. But I love that as I get older, one of the things I think that I really appreciate is that I get a little wiser too. So mm-hmm. yeah, my body kind of breaks down, you know, you get these bum knees and the, you know, all that stuff, but you also gain wisdom. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say is in your work, you have really fine tuned it. And I know that you do that. I've seen you do it and do it with me because I had situations where I lost clients and, you know, whatever. And we, you know, you were there to support me. And, and all the great therapists or people who I've worked with like that, they all listen. Mm-hmm. It's not that they hear something and they, they say this is brilliant comment where you go, oh my God, thank you. And you're out the door. It's more like, and I recognize more just giving me space and listening and asking just the right question, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's so vital for just, you know, we, this show's about recovery and it's about enjoying life and, I, it just took me so long to get to that point. Hmm. Was that something that took you? Was it like when you went to school? Did you start to develop it, or would you say your whole life you were like a good listener? That's a good question. And I, you know, I I always put myself in the space of constant learner. And so as I build my listening skills, I don't think, feel like there's like an arrival. There's always room for me to listen better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say I trace back my ability to listen well to my childhood and what I experienced growing up with my mom. I had to be a space of a very good listener because I had to also be an advocate for my mom and be able to um, help her in her hardest times and work with systems that weren't listening. Well, this is what I want to hear. Tell me a little about that. Yeah. So, um, I grew up with my mom, single parent, household, only child. Um, my father, um, he suffered from alcoholism mm-hmm. and he died when I was seven mm-hmm. of cancer. Um, but my mom had divorced him when I was a little over a year old and we experienced some time of homelessness, mm-hmm. um, spent time in shelters and spent time with family and friends just wherever we could. Um, until my mom was able to get a steady job and put a roof over our heads. Um, but she had herself, her own really difficult adulthood. She had experienced trauma early in life, um, and then became agoraphobic and mm. spent better part of 10 years living at her parents' home, um, too afraid to go out to do anything. Um, and it was really hard for her to, to branch out from that. Um, she had a good psychiatrist that helped her. Um, and she eventually emerged from it and came out into the working world, got married a couple times, had me. Um, and then not too long after the, the divorce, it kind of circled back. Mm-hmm. So once we found a place to live, um, she didn't get another job and she spent most of her time at home. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And she also had severe anxiety um, and also hoarded. So mm. I, I lived in a home that was very full of many things, mm. things that she didn't want to let go of. Um, so it was a little, little challenging to, you know, live a typical life of a kid. Usually you have your friends over and play and do all those things. And I right. couldn't do that. Um, you know, my friends weren't allowed in the house. Probably wasn't even very safe to have them in the house because mm. it was, it was pretty bad. Mm. Um, and there were times my mother would get sick, but she wouldn't want to go to the doctor. Um, was too afraid to go to the doctor. And so, you know, in those spaces, I had to learn how to negotiate space with her and negotiate understanding. And I learned a lot about what it means to communicate with somebody who's terrified. Mm. That is a great, listen, you, you stopped at a really great, we're going to take a quick break here, but that really leads us to where we're going. Cause everything that you just said, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, and I've said this before that, that those things that have, been most difficult or tribulations we've had or you know these events you're talking about obviously had to create a, an incredible amount of like both uh, trauma and fear because you're a child parenting a parent mm -hmm. and you developed i'm guessing because now that i you just shared that part the next part that i want to go into after this break is that you lived that life so when people call on the phone mm -hmm. how can you not connect to that and how can you i mean that's a really great insight because what i found talking to people more in depth who are you know the givers healing arts or whatever is that that's a that's a pretty vital part of why they do what they do and because they're so good at it yeah yep so we'll talk more about that when we come back All right, welcome back. Well, that was great. I really appreciate the background. For me, the background really like, whenever I read a biography, what fascinates me is the part we don't know about this person. So whoever it might be, Einstein or Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. For me, that the part about like, where did that, that initial when you're imprinted with certain things, and it sounds to me you were imprinted in the things that were, whereas from the beginning, lose, you know, your father losing him and the, you know, divorce. So you didn't really have them in your life much. And then being homeless and, you know, trying to navigate this world and understand that you had to learn how to communicate with this person with in great fear. Did you recognize that she was different than other people? Yeah. I mean, some aspects of it. You know, you just know what you know because you're living in it. And then when you're outside of it and I'm, you know, with my friends going to school and seeing what parenting looks like on the other side of things, you you realize there's some differences. Um, I was acutely aware of many different things that impacted my mother and how she was parented because we spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, and my my earliest remembrance of what it means to be in a relationship was really centered around who is going to fulfill whose needs mm. there was always like a demand for something and um a resistance to it but then a giving in um and when i was not in those spaces mm. and i'm with friends it wasn't like that it was very different mm. um so, you know, I found myself often feeling like a parent 
to my parent Mm. and my mom felt like a parent to her parents. So, you know, kind of took on an intergenerational. Yeah. Did that create a, were you um, angry about that? Not at that time. No, I wasn't. Did you get angry? Oh, probably in my teens. Yeah. Like around 15, 16 when, you know, you're in that space where your your whole world is your social group and you want to do all the social things and you want to explore all different kinds of relationships. And that was not acceptable in my household. Mm. And so that's when what I was What does that like, mean? Well, because I had to take care of my mom. And if I was doing something else, then I was splitting attention. And whatever I was doing was um, not supportive of her. Mm. Um, And at that time, and I I say that with my adolescent remembrance, Mm. I look at it differently now, but Mm -hmm. that's what made me feel very angry. It's like... It makes sense. Yeah. I I wanted to be myself and do my own thing. Unleash the inner you. Yeah. 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 And, and, And the inner you is quite like what I've... Um, heard you talk about just in the last couple of months, all these different things you do and that you're engaged in. And you mentioned, I'm a creative person might have been the first thing you said. I'm not sure, but I think so. You do so many things. I mean, I, you, I've seen you do costumes for cosplay mm-hmm. for yourself and your daughter. You talked about what are some of the things over the years that have, have given you, you know, um, joy? Cause I know there, there's a lot of them that I've heard of. So tell me what, what, why is it so widespread and, was that on purpose to investigate yeah. the world and just see what's out there? Well, I think also part of it is that, yes. I think part of it also um, as an art therapist, you know, we have to explore all different kinds of media. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it fun, you know, delving into different things. And it makes it also very versatile when working with people in a therapeutic context that I can get creative with just about any kind of material and support a person in that process. Um, but I think also because I was an only child and I didn't have a lot of um, regular peer experiences. And I grew up, you know, in a, in a family of creatives. My mother was an artist. My grandfather was an artist. My mm. grandmother was an artist. Wow. My grandfather taught at the School of the Art Institute. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, art was around me. You know, not everything was all chaos and fear, there was also joy and an appreciation of creative things. So I spent a lot of time just exploring that. Um, it's what I had access to. Um, I grew up poor too, so I didn't have a lot of like fancy toys and things like that. So mm-hmm. I made my own things. I made my own toys. I made costumes for my toys. And um, I found interesting ways of making paint and drawing materials. Give me an example. An example of paint. Yeah, like what did you put mustard with? I would repurpose like uh, eyeshadow and mix it with baby oil and paint with that. <laughs> okay. You know, I would do the same. I mean, I had... Um, all kinds of stuff that I would do. I'd take, um, colored pencils and, um, take the, 
you know, I'd like a sharpen it and then I'd like pulverize it into a powder and mm. add water to it to try to make my own type of like watercolor. Wow. That was before they, you know, that I could like actually get watercolor pencils. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you just go to the, the drugstore and you get the cheapy stuff. You know, there's this part of what you're saying that is like people like tend to romanticize. When we were kids, we didn't have Nintendo. We took sticks outside and we played in the trees for hours or whatever. And there's a a romantic sort of quality of like that which somehow makes them, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. You know, I I understand that at different levels as you get older, you kind of, and I know I've done this, you move away from things and don't understand. Um but from what I'm hearing from you in this case is that you have this curiosity. You have this mind that is creative naturally from your family and also obviously somewhere inside you. So you put all these things together and you've created these things. And so is it fair to say you continue to do that today? Yeah, I do. And I think also because my daughter is very similar in that respect, mm. um, we do that together and it feels very um, familiar and comforting to be able to do that. Um, she's not afraid to explore stuff and she will get really creative with whatever we have around the house. And so, you know, I support that and delve into it with her. That is so cool. She's doing the same thing you did kind of. Kind of. Yeah, kind of, (laughs) kind of. I mean, she just does that. I think because she's been creative ever since she was like two and she's, she draws every single day. She hasn't stopped drawing every single day since she was two. Oh. But now that she's older and, you know, cognitively more complex with things, mm-hmm. she, you know, gets stuff and does some interesting things with them. Well, I've seen the cosplay costumes you've made and some of the other things. But I'm also just struck by this idea that it when it literally runs in your veins... It really sounds like that in your family. Mm -hmm. Grandfather, grandmother, mother, you, now your daughter. I wonder what that is. What is that? Well, I think part of it is, you know, what we're exposed to in our our household. You know, when we see other creative people doing creative things, we're inclined to do that. Um, My husband's also an artist, so it's on both sides. You know, she can't really escape seeing it. Yeah. you know, I'm not an expert in, in genetic stuff, but I do feel like there are um, things that people will pass down from their experiences and their talents. Um, so I, I do feel like there can be a propensity for that, but it can manifest itself in different ways. It doesn't always mean, you know, a visual artist will, you know, have a family of visual artists, but maybe they might be musical or they might be the written arts. And I've seen that in my family. Hmm. Um, there are people who are musicians. There are people who are poets and writers. Um, so, you know, I think when you're exposed to it and you create an environment that's supportive of it, then it's cultivated. Well, I was just thinking of a garden. Mm-hmm. When you when you are, let's say, this garden you have, you when you put those kinds of elements into it, creative elements, mm-hmm. the ability to do your, do it yourself or whatever, or just, and you have that around. It's almost like the garden that you create to grow things like, uh, somebody who like might be a farmer or be an engineer there. That might be math. It might be mm-hmm. projects like, you know, it used to be the erector set now like Legos or yeah. something like that. So, 
uh, I'm fascinated by how we pass things on because we these are good things. And these are also, I'm thinking the next question, we're going to take a quick break is, did you create these out of coping skills mm-hmm. or did you recognize that later? So we'll talk about that when we get back. Ah, welcome back. Well, let's talk a little bit about coping skills. Um, so again, was this, uh, do you think now sitting here, was this something that just like organically came to be? Because you do so much of that on the helpline. There is so much, what do I do or how do I cope? And I know that you talk about that a lot as you deal with people. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. And yeah. is that organic or does that come through specific work? It definitely was organic. Um, you know, I think there's a natural propensity for people to understand what they're in and what they're experiencing. And there are many different ways people will engage things as a way of coping with what they're experiencing. And I think I became much more aware of that in my teens. Um, I think making art was one, a way for me to manage the stress that I felt and the confusion that I felt. And it also helped me um, tap more into empathy, Um, especially when I started pairing my images with poetry that I would write Mm. um, and really thinking about like certain dynamics of situations I was in and my mom was in. So while I was trying to figure myself out and assert my independence, I was also trying to understand what it meant to be in the family I'm in and what it meant for my mom to experience what she was experiencing and how that was affecting me. Hmm. And so today, when you're so inundated with people who need some kind of comfort or relief or understanding, um, what do you, what do you, what's your take on coping skills, using art, using what, um, how do you approach that with people? That's a good question. You know, I really listen for what a person may already be sort of doing in, in their every day, what actually either brings them a sense of joy, if that is achievable for them, mm-hmm. or, um, not necessarily, you know, in the colloquial sense of serving a distraction, but if it shifts a focus. Mm-hmm. And I really just like to support a person in what they may already be starting to do for themselves um, or what makes them curious. Um, and I, I put that in the context of, you know, what if you were to delve into this by making a drawing or writing something down? It would be a shift from the everyday of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and just sort of seeing what is it like to do that. Um, I always, you know, want to invite people to think about something, but I'd rather hear what they're already doing and utilizing that. So if those things sort of come up naturally in the conversation, that's where I'll sort of hold that space. Um, Coping skills. I mean, we all have coping skills. Some coping skills are, great. Some coping skills sometimes make things a little bit harder. Um, And so I, you know, I put into the context of how it's not bad to have coping skills. 
Um, sometimes people will call on the helpline and they're engaging in coping skills, but they don't realize that they are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that and, and have them, you know, sort of think about like, well, when you are doing this, what do you notice when you do it? And if it's like, oh, you know, I don't feel as anxious or I just want this to stop. And when I do this, it stops and sort of, you know, building that awareness of, well, that's a coping skill. So let's try to find some coping skills or let's see what elements of what you're doing are actually health healthy for you. And let's see what some of the things that aren't and what can we do differently with it. You know, that's a great answer. And I think almost this whole, like this should be called the, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? I know you can read my mind. <laughs> I'm trying to. Well, it, we talked about active listening. That's really, yes. for me, this is what I, and you, and I'll be honest, just as we're talking about it, I realize how much, how uh, good you are at it. And that I sort of like, we have a, a nice relationship, friendship, fun, and we laugh. And, but I am recognizing more because this has sort of become a theme that, and remembering times that you counseled me when I'd like, you know, when something traumatic happened or just my symptoms that you, uh, I, I'm recognizing that you always held space for me and you never gave me something that I didn't ask for. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm recognizing that now and you're smiling like, <laughs> see, but it's like, this is what I love about this is because really, and I do the same thing with other people, but I can't do it for myself. When we have groups, people ask questions because they think you're at NAMI, you work there, you have the answers. And I'm very quick to say, listen, I pick some, as much out of these as you and probably more because I also found out there's no answer. Right. It is just continual work mm -hmm. and giving space and sharing. Exactly. And uh, you have never said anything to me, Freddie, that has changed my life forever. But what you've done is you've provided me that space You've listened to what I said, and then you've turned that into, instead of saying, oh, I think I know what you're not doing. You can, you should probably cut more onions and more vegetable stuff. I think that, I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like, because we really want that. And people come to groups or whatever, mm -hmm. and what they really want, they want comfort. They want, you know, the things that, that but they want, we all do. I have. I still think I'm going to find that one thing. Hmm. That medicine or that saying or some person, a, philosopher, uh, a therapist or a you know, psychologist or someone like you. And oh, she said all these things and it changed my life. I mean, that's almost the romantic ideal of recovery. It is. It is. Talk a little about that. Yeah. And I, I would think it, you know, it's, it has its birthplace in sort of the medical model of, you know, here is the thing. Here is the answer. This will be the cure-all. You are the expert. I am the one who will absorb it. And really, change only happens from within yourself. I can't give you something that will make you change or make you do something different. You have to want to do that for yourself. We live in a society where people, you know, have their judgments and their biases about whatever anything is. Mm -hmm. And it can be very hard and unsafe to make change when you're in a society that doesn't listen, that doesn't value mm -hmm. you, that doesn't recognize that your truth is your truth. Um, and so, you know, the medical model thing kind of like creates this false sense of security. Mm -hmm. Um, but really it sets you up for not actually dealing with things internally. 
and you put it on to someone else and you won't walk away feeling totally satisfied because it's not your own internal resources. Mm. It's externalized. Yeah. So I, I come from a perspective of I'm joining with you because I'm a human being too. I have experiences as well and they are ever long and will continue to be my challenges until the day I die. But I don't want to be alone with that. And most people, you know, want to be connected in some way. Yeah. On some level, according to their own wants and needs with that. But when you connect with somebody that understands that, and I don't mean in the superficial of like, oh, I understand, but understands their own path and knows what that's like, and you have a shared journey, then you don't have to depend on one person or the other to make change. You're working that out in that space together. And so that's what I, I like to do is to try to make sure there's that space that feels safe to do that. And sometimes that takes is the most effort is just instead of giving people answers or trying to create answers or create solutions for them when they should be created, is that just having people, I'm asking this as a question as well, do you find, because what I find is that, so when I would work for people with people for a couple of years, I would sometimes feel impatient knowing that they were going the right way and they'd stop or whatever, but that's just their journey. I have absolutely no control over that. And when I start to think I do, that's when I need to back off. But uh, I like how you said that no change comes unless you do it yourself. Because uh, that's the hardest thing to for people who are really struggling. When I am in my symptoms and I'm really you know, deeply like starting to go down this road, it's like it just you lose that ability. And you're almost like a drowning victim reaching out mm-hmm. for people. And what I find is when most effective and I continue to work on is like you said, is creating it within what I have. And, um, there is this, um, quality of, um, care that supersedes for me. Um, for, so example, in AA, substance abuse, alcoholism specifically, I mean, all the years that I tried to get sober. 15 years, I couldn't do it. I needed a better sponsor. Mm. I need a meeting where I really, people understand me and they're like me and they grew up like me or all men or I need people who would laugh a lot. All those things may have a little truth in them, but the reality was I was looking for reasons why Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. And so when I finally realized, didn't we just talked about this in Mm -hmm. the car? Is that my third DUI? You said, what happened? I said, it was a third DUI where I kept dreaming every night I'd kill a family in a van. Yeah. And because uh, I saw somebody presented that to us and I had to go to court to do. I was like, I, I was like, I don't ever want to do that. And so that started the change. But again, mm-hmm. 17, 20 years in A, dancing in and out, it doesn't work because nobody, you make it work. I make yeah. it work. And when people call you, you're like, because I know you sense that people probably. Oh, yeah. What do I do? I get that <sighs> all the time. Okay. People will actually say like. Tell me, what do I need to do? (laughs) You know, and they'll say, you're the expert. Right. I'm like, this is life. This is, we are all in, in, in our own little boats of experience and we have to navigate it. You know, we don't have like one, one captain for the whole ship. You know, we have our own. Um, so what can I help you with and, 
trying to figure this out together. How can I support you? Then that, I think that's the thing is like supporting a person, even when they're going through the motions of trying to figure something out where I've seen where people might fall off of their recovery. They're in situations where they don't have somebody that's supporting them even through the difficult times. Um, and that's something I've had to learn you know, as a, as a therapist and kind of moving away from the traditional thinking of like, well, you know, somebody's being resistant. So if they're being resistant, you can't keep working with them until that resistance is gone. And it's like, well, well, how did that, how does that happen? What does it mean to like pull away relationship from somebody when things are bad and you're only there when things are good? It doesn't make any sense. Human beings are messy. We are extremely messy. Okay, this is, so along that line, tell me of a success story and how that played out that sort of is, I mean, I I know there's a ton of great ones, not so great, I mean, the whole spectrum, but what is a good example for you of how the, how the process, you, you think it works best, if I could say that? Yeah, I mean, I, I know uh, we've, we've had our, um, conversations about one person that I work with, continue to work with, who also, um, comes to our groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, this particular individual has had a lifetime of trauma and all different, um, experiences with systems. You know, you name it, they've been through it. Um, and this is, this was a pivotal engagement that I've had where I've had to learn, you know, about myself in that space too, about what it takes to, you know, stick with somebody. Um, an individual that would, you know, go through multiple hospitalizations in a year. Um, and you're working with them the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at this point, um, at this point in time, you know, they're not, uh, necessarily going through the same things that they were because going through a couple of hospitalizations with this individual and I didn't disappear because I didn't say, well, you're resistant. So you got to figure this out. Bye. I can't do this anymore. Mm. No, I stuck through it. And that helped them feel like this is a space they could trust. And so with their vulnerabilities and knowing like, I see your vulnerabilities. I respect your vulnerabilities. I'm not judging you on your vulnerabilities. And in some ways, some of these vulnerabilities are what makes you strong. Let's talk about mm. that. Literally, let's talk about that next. We're going to take a quick break. And and I have really loved the experience with that person because I have seen growth. And it has n- zero to do with me except me figuring out how to provide a safe space. Because you told me that this person, and, and I'm like, what, what can I do? There's nothing I can say, but what I can do is create the place and a smile, right? That's one of the things yeah. I, I teach. When people walk in the room, for that 90 minutes you're doing a group, you become super, I call it Eric Plus. <laughs> I bring Eric, but I also put a little plus in there. And I make sure it's, I try and be authentic. But with her, this person, uh, especially, I want to be, you know, that makes me a better, able to do my job. And I learned that from you. So we'll uh, pick back up in just a second. Hey, welcome back. This has been awesome. I love where this is going. We talked a little bit on the break about being organic 
And that's one of the reasons why I love these conversations is that I never know what's going to happen. And I do it purposely don't. All I do is like with you, I told you, well, we're going to do like 20 minutes ago. I said, oh, this is what's going to look like. <laughs> we're going to do that uh, nine um, uh, quick questions. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit more. And I want to go a little bit into what you just kind of were, we were moving into, you know, the coping skills and, and giving space. These are all things that uh, you do as your job, but you also obviously figured out. And as you move through your, your childhood and adolescence and your, your family circumstances. Um, and now let's talk a little bit about where you're at and what are some of the challenges you have? Because we're talking about, for me, the recovery part is always for me, based on how I relate to others, learn and share about my um, uh, diagnosis and my life story and feeling safe to do so. It's taken me like 20 years to feel safe. Mm. I just re realized like a long time ago, I'm like, if I work in this profession, I, I was at a hospital, uh, working in a hospital that I had been in at one point, locked up psychiatrically. And later, a couple of years later, I, you know, I'm a social worker. I've been that way my whole life, but I've also been in and out of hospitals. So that's why I'm so intrigued by this notion of, um, it's not a notion. It's, uh, by the, um, peer, uh, support and the recovery process based on just like with AA and that you have a sponsor or you have at least other people who share that same story. And, um, I love that. And I love that you are, exemplifying that but you're not putting a label on it so in other words you're able to talk to people because you've been there you know you talked about homelessness and you talk so i know you you work in some very tragic circumstances you know all imagine all the things that happen and uh in this city or any city you know deaths and you know all the terrible things but um yet you somehow managed to do it and uh how do you keep yourself in a good place and what do you what do you uh where are you in that whole scheme of things that's a really good question and i always like to say it's a work in progress you know i think um being able to maintain a certain level of energy to do the work that i do requires a balance of different things having the right support system having an outlet um, and constantly being aware of what I tell myself. Mm. Um, I've found myself moving through different experiences of my own mental health um, from adolescence into early adulthood. I experienced a lot of depression. I was given a diagnosis of dysthymia. Mm -hmm. um, and Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so dysthymia is like what they say is sort of a, a pervasive, sort of a, a lower grade depression. It's not where you're in such the depths of depression that you can't do anything. It's, I, I call it like a functional depression. <laughs> you know, okay. I, I am not always thrilled about things in life. Um, I am not always full of energy, but I can do it and I can get through my day and I can do my work, um, but it can be very mentally and emotionally exhausting. Um, I don't always feel the, the very high highs that people might with specific things, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
and I, I can get pretty, pretty low, but it, you know, I don't stay stuck there. Um, being creative helps with some of that. Ah, okay. So that's one way I can, you know, pull myself. Listening to music is very regulating oh, for me. Oh, do we have places to go with that? I did yeah. not realize what a music freak you are, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, we start talking. I remember the first time I had a really like in-depth music. I'm like, wait, you saw this band and you liked it, and you know this song, and I was like, there's a whole other you. Oh yeah. Uh, I want to talk about music, but keep going with that. We'll yeah, return yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those are things that help help me manage when I, you know, have depression. But as I've gotten older, I've noticed things are moving from a state of depression more to anxiety. And mm. I have this um, growing experience of anxiety that, you know, I'm I'm learning how to manage as I as I get older. Um, I think some of it is partly because I'm, you know, carrying so many different things that I do mm. and trying to manage all of it, mm-hmm. not always having all the support that I need to do so. Um, and then I think also it's, you know, it's a manifestation of, I don't know, the, the mental health thread that goes through my family. Mm-hmm. Most everybody has had anxiety. Mm. And anxiety and depression go hand in hand. Mm. You know, anxiety can fuel the depression, and then the depression fuels the anxiety. So it's kind of hard to escape that. Um, so, you know, right now I'm at a point in life, I, I can manage my mood, but I'm having to figure out how to manage the physiological response to anxiety. Mm. Um, Tell me what that looks like or feels like. Oh, wow. So it looks like overwork. Mm-hmm. I will throw myself into work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, you know, will experience things like chest pains and mm. panic attacks. Okay. Panic attacks are fun. Not, are they? Not. Oh, God. I'm telling you. I mean, I, my first panic attack I had back in college and I didn't realize what it was and mm. I thought I was going to die. They, you know, they, they always <laughs> say do. that. You feel like you're going to oh, die. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Like you can't breathe. Yeah. You, your chest is so tight. You like. Constricted. Yeah. Oh it's like God. being with a boa constrictor around you. Yes. It's very claustrophobic to me. Yeah. Yeah. Very. I like pace around and like freak out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now it's like, I'm sleeping. Oh, I finally get to fall asleep. And then suddenly my heart is racing. Suddenly I can't breathe. Mm. Suddenly the room is darker than it should be. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. It's like, I was resting. Why is my body shaken out of this state of rest? And now it's in distress. Um, so, you know, in those moments, I, I have to sort of rely on what I'm thinking and what I can do to calm things down. Sometimes breathing works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, a lot of, for me, for my experience, it's usually my own thought processes. Cause I, you know, with my depression, I can really get into some dark places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to really be mindful and f- force myself not to do that. It's easy to when you think you're dying. I know. And then you start picturing what that's going to look like and how everybody's going to... So I got to like pull myself back and be like, I'm not dying. (laughs) You're not dying. This is not death. You know, and then I I have to think about like what it will look like at the end of this, telling myself this will peak and then it will start to go down. You've been through this before. This is what it feels like when it starts to go down. And so really anchoring myself to that. 
I love the way you describe that because it is, there's something very like, and I'm not sure if it's like, you know, there's that response, there's responses that doctors will say when you take a newborn and you, you know, let's say you just drop it an inch, but it feels like it, it has this response and there's some word for it. Oh yeah. Based on, and I can't remember all the science, but there's just certain things that, uh, when it hits, like let's say you're claustrophobic, it makes no sense to anybody outside of you or even to yourself, but to have that feeling of claustrophobic feeling mm-hmm. of not being able to breathe or that you're going to die is a very real thing. And it's, uh, it's more common than people want to admit because it mm-hmm. has always drawn so much. People always feel so much judgment, you know, like first responders that we work with police or, yeah. or men. I mean, women are so much better at that. And that's one of the reasons why I really like to bring it out. Like when I go mm-hmm. talk to cops, I try and get down to the nitty gritty like that. Mm-hmm. And it's not generally a good response, but yeah. I don't care. I, I don't make a big deal out of it, but I just want to introduce it. Yeah. Who I am, what I am, what's happened and all yeah. And you know, you can just see them like kind of go a certain place and go, they can meet me so far. And, and I don't know the true story, but I mean, Boy, this, this, this idea of just making space, like I said before, and listening to people, because what you just said to me, somebody could, would call the, the helpline with that and say, yes. this is what's happening. Yeah. And people who call the helpline might say, oh, you feel the same way? But I think there's real, mm-hmm. our biggest weaknesses, I think, can, are also our biggest strengths. Because once we acknowledge them, mm-hmm. that they're there, we can talk to other people about it, it is unbelievable how much I get back from that. Yeah. That's what I learned. Like for the last 20 some years, I've been trying to say it because I know if I say it, I'm not going to let it boil up and kill me. Literally. Exactly. So I love that you say that yeah. and you're comfortable with it. And I don't have all the answers because the reality is it's hard when you're scared to talk to um, Freddie and Freddie doesn't have all the answers because out of fear and out of my history of uh, anxiety or whatever, I really need that. So when they call, I'm sure you hear that in their voice. Like you don't, you're not going to tell me what? Do you, how do you deal with that? Oh yeah. Well, how do I deal with that? I don't know. I mean, I think it really just sort of depends on what's happening in the moment. I really follow the caller's lead. I try not to um, lead them somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You allow them to lead. That's great. Yeah. I love that. And and there can be moments where maybe somebody will lead themselves into another spot of distress. Mm-hmm. What you just said, though, about like acknowledging what is can lead to, I I call it sort of like an equalizing moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if what I hear in that moment I relate to, I will put that out there. You know, being a clinician, you're always taught about the boundaries of sharing Mm -hmm. about your own experiences Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I understand where that comes from and why. but I think when you're a clinician with your own lived experience, you use that to help inform how you manage the boundaries. But I think the only way you can really um, really get at the heart of a moment is when you have a relatability. And so in those moments where I can use some of my clinical skill to you know, either provide psychoeducation or um, to talk about coping skills or whatnot, I first will enter that space with like, how is this resonating with me? What have I done in that space? And giving voice to that, acknowledging that, because then that person's no longer alone in that space. Mm-hmm. 
we may be on the phone together and talking about things and they may still feel very alone until there's that moment where they're like, oh, you know what this is like. So I don't have to stay there by myself with this. Yes, thank, that is a really great way to put it. Because there is a hesitancy for professionals and they teach you this in a lot of ther in therapy that if you are aren't if you um, exhibit weakness or you say oh I'm say whatever if you try to make that connection it can be disheartening to a client looking for help thinking you know what I mean mm -hmm. I I think that, I mean we could go on on about that but I mean I think I understand that if you go see somebody and they're a psychologist and you go in and they go and he says or she says I'm really depressed today too I don't know if I could you know what I mean right that's obviously not gonna work but that's because they're centering themselves in that moment there you go what would you prefer to see what would I prefer to see from the in that situation in that situation yeah um well I think putting context around understanding what is happening in that moment mm -hmm. not necessarily sitting there saying like oh well, i'm depressed i don't think i have the energy it's like i've been in spaces like that before yeah. where i've been i felt so depressed i couldn't do something mm -hmm. um you know what is it like for you right now you know I, I there's there's certain things that i can see happening in this space that's that's relatable um but i'm not gonna sit there and say well yeah i'm right there with you let's let's sit and right you know but so, yeah, because I think for me in the same way when I, you know, decades ago when I said I've got to be able to figure out a way to be uh, uh, on the same level, but also um, just completely honest, but to bring both things a professional, yeah. bring it professionally and bring it personally. That's hard. It I, is. And I still work on that. But I do know this when I do that and say, you know what? Uh, I can I understand what that feels like yeah. because I have gone through those things so I'm not saying I can't deal with you because I'm that way or that I'm just the same as you I'm just saying mm -hmm. those are human experiences They're hum exactly I, it, it's They're human normal experiences. I felt them yep I love that when I first started when I first started you know uh, working in social work I always wanted to make that connection because I struggled so much to feeling guilty and feeling ashamed that how can I work in a psychiatric hospital? I'm as fucked up as they are, you know, and then uh, realizing that that really was a strength. Mm -hmm. But then how do I say it so that I don't make them afraid or it's too much for them at their fragile state because they are in a, an episode. So that was for me where I kind of sharpened my skills is how do, how do I communicate? I remember one time, um, a young lady came into the hospital and this was a psychiatric and adolescent unit emergency room and she something about her just really touched me she was uh large you know i'm a big guy and so i know that sometimes that's an issue and i just felt for her and she had cut herself mm. and i just said i felt because i have also done that to myself in one of my attempts and i um couldn't think of a way to connect so then i showed her my scars and uh I don't think that was what I wanted to do. Mm. It was symbolically what I wanted to do, and nothing bad happened from it. But I so wanted to communicate my, I didn't know how else to do it. Mm -hmm. So she, she, she was a young black girl from the South Side, so we had nothing connecting us. We had talked and, you know, nice and, but, you know, very distraught. And I was just struggling so much to want to say, I've done that. 
and it's going to be okay or you know not that i want but just that just give space i don't yeah. know what to call it yeah and i find that that is if i see a doctor or a psychologist or a therapist and they choose to not acknowledge that um that they have you know it's tricky i mm-hmm. I'm just not trying to, but i just but the other side of that is when you find a way to do it in a very like and that's what i've done i try to and i continue to tr- try and make it because sometimes it just doesn't work with certain people but when it works, it's amazing. Yeah, it's as much of a healing process as a new medication for me because I get it back from other people, and people come back to me and literally are so grateful. I can't believe you said that mm-hmm. because I know I'm not. You know, that it's it's part of being human. So this is a long way of saying that I appreciate that you're willing to do this here because you know you do this every day and you really dedicate yourself and you're excellent at it. And not until we had this conversation did I realize how good you are at it. And it's good to have people like that in my life and then for the people in the city of Chicago. <laughs> Thank you. And heard it is city over there. <laughs> so we got a few minutes left. I want to do the um, nine questions. Yeah. The nine, and people say, why nine, Eric? I'm like, because it's not 10. <laughs> and it's not eight. <laughs> it's not 11. <laughs> but um, we're going to do that in a second. So we'll take a quick break. Uh, I want to get some uh, final thoughts from you, and then we'll do the nine questions. Sounds good. All right. All right, welcome back. This is going great. I've really picked up speed. I was telling you, and this is always my goal is to be 100% uh, transparent. Is I was I was not feeling it today. It was like you know, like I kept bumping into stuff after I told you, be careful, they're going to hear you if you bump. <laughs> and then I proceeded to hit everything on this table. <laughs> and you're like just smiling. I'm like, just Good job. going with it. I know it is what it is. You're great. And you said, "Hey, let's do it." So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad because this conversation is. And I tell this to people when I do groups and lead groups, and I've done them forever, and I've learned from people how to, to do, to do it better, and I'm fascinated by it, and I hope I do it really well. I think I do, but I also always pick something up, and I literally always feel like I'm leaving with more than the people that are here, because mm. I do. Mm-hmm. I literally learn from everybody, and I just learned from you, like when you shared. You offered, I give you the space, hope, and you seem to feel comfortable telling it, and I oh. mean, that's the benefit of it. It's like, so when I think of you, I don't think of, I'm going to go to Frederica Malone, because she will tell me just the right thing. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, that's what I wanted, the wise mentor. But I realized more what I need and want is somebody who's going to be open and say, I get that. And then I feel like part of the human race. Oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not a freak. No, I feel that. Oh, then the relief, then the chat, and the space, and the time, and the love, and the passion, and laughter. Yes. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to ask you just a few questions because you took... Music. Music. I have never met anybody with the um, breadth of interest and knowledge. I definitely, if I ever did a, a music trivia contest for a million dollars, I'd use you as my partner. I can't believe what you know, like Depeche Mode and all these people. Tell me a little bit about where did that come from? Where did that come from? Yeah. I love talking about this. So my mom actually worked for WFMT, which is no, the local class. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, she did. Wow. That was before I was born. Actually, while I was in her belly, she worked That's for them. That's what it was. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think music has been a central part of my life through my mom. 
Um, it was something that we always connected with. And I grew up like first six years of my life listening almost exclusively to classical music, opera. Wow. Um, and then one day my mom shared with me because she loved music, although she wasn't a big fan of rock and roll. Um, <laughs> you say it like that? She would say like, she would always say rock and roll, not just rock, wow. just rock and roll. That says something right there, right? I mean. Yeah. It, and also to give you context, my mom was a generation, well, I'm a generation removed from what would have been the expected generation at that time. My mom had me when she was just about 42. Wow. Yeah. So I probably should have been in the boomer generation, but I ended up just outside of that. Mm. She was from the silent generation, born in 1933. Um, so experiences were a bit different. You know, she wasn't necessarily like the trending kind of parent. She kind of lived a little bit set back, um, which I think was really great because I was exposed to a lot of different things, just not so much rock and roll. Um, <laughs> God. That's what you said. It makes it seem picky and dirty. That's how she made it feel. She made it feel like there was something wrong with it. But then one day she played Janis Joplin. She put on a record of Janis Joplin. And I was like, what's this? And she's like, oh, it's, you know, it's uh, it's sort of like a a folk music. Uh, Okay. Mm. That's folk music. Okay. But then I'm like, I remember listening to folk music. Yes, there's folk in this, but this isn't just folk music. There's something else here that makes something else is going on there. And I'm like, Mom, are you sure you don't listen to rock and roll? (laughs) (laughs) And she She was, she's like, No, the as far as I would go with listening to rock and roll was uh, a song by the Beatles called Hey Jude. Okay. So I'm like, Well, let me hear Hey Jude. Did you really? Yeah. That. And so. So she got a tape, plugged it in. I'm like, all right, what is this music? This is rock <laughs> this and is roll. This is rock and roll. <laughs> and so my mom was like, all right, well, you, you've got an interest in music. And she gave me a boom box. And of course, oh this is my. the 80s. Right. So I've got this big old boom box. And I'm, you know, I, the first thing I listen to is WFMT because that's what's in my household. And I'm like, all right, this is great. This is great. What happens when I turn the dial (laughs) and I hear all this amazing stuff? I get to the very end of the FM dial and there's this college radio station from Loyola and they're playing all kinds of stuff. And I, the, the night I had the boom box, I did not sleep. I listened to that till the sun came up. Wow. It's that memorable. Wow. It was like my brain was on overdrive, hearing all this type of music. And I was hooked. I'm like, I want to understand more. More. I want to hear I want to hear the rock. I want to hear the blues. I want to hear the jazz. And everything was like new to me. I just dove into. Now that totally makes sense. Because when I talk to you and your breadth of knowledge about it makes made me realize, number one, you're different in that you don't have one style. You may. I don't know. I, you can tell me. But you seem to know a lot about all the different, I mean, you know, different genres, classic rock. Yeah. I mean, I talk to you, try to trip you up, and you're like, you know, and I go, what? 
It, it's really <laughs> impressive. I got this because I'm a music freak too. Oh, I know. But I'm not giving you that title yet. I mean, the, I'm the king of. Music you are. Freak. I will defer to you for that. <laughs> but That's, but but you have the breath. I mean, I may know rock maybe, but geez, I can't. I can't. How did it? I mean, so it just grew from that, right? Yeah. I mean that that night must have been like the night of like your, you know. It was my boombox was my best friend. Yeah, and that's where where I learned that music would be my best friend. That was like you know for for my soul. That was the thing that gives me life. I wish I could play as well as like as much as I like love to listen. Mm -hmm. um, I've never had very good formal instruction. Mm -hmm. um, I've sort of taught myself the guitar and only to a certain point mm -hmm. um i took band in high school and i played drums um but i haven't really like developed a practice mm -hmm. so you know the skill is not hardened um but i do make a point of listening to as much as i can from all around the world so even with that boombox, I had shortwave radio on there, oh, wow. and I was able to tune in to music around the world. Wow. So, you know, just like, it's just an amazing part of being human to create instruments, to exercise the voice in different ways to express, and to put that all together. And you, you've created a whole new level of communication when you're making music. Like, I just can't separate that. From from being alive, I have to have music. Yes, it's like air for me. Yeah. If I go a day and I don't have music on, it's okay, but it's different. Yeah. I I have shared this before, but Spotify um, literally blew my mind a year ago. In that I would play a song I like, and then I would be distracted and I'd go away, and all of a sudden. It would start playing songs that were connected to it. And I'm like, I have found, it's like I have discovered King Solomon's mind. Oh, yeah. I just, and there's more. I break through another wall and I go, all this place. I'm like, I didn't know there was so much rock and roll <laughs> out there. And I love it. And it is, it's joy. For me, live band and feeling the notes. Yeah. It's, it's like a baptism of, you know. Like you said, like creating the notes and, the, and the, all the different range of voices and the way you have to modulate it. There's all kinds of studies on music and its effect okay. on plants and its effect on whatever. But on human beings, for me, it's like the best medicine out there. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I learned relatively recently um, within the context of people living with dementia, and I, I say this because that is what is through my family. All of my family members, aside from my father's side, had dementia. And the one thing about music is it creates activity in the entire brain. Mm. And what they have found, people who have dementia, when they listen to music, there are reparative experiences to the cognitive decline. Um, and they can get into a space of realization that they're like back into who they are That's and so what cool. they remember. Isn't that awesome? It is. And uh, the reparative part, I mean, yeah. to think that it could actually increase your uh, or yeah. return to some, you know, that's amazing. It is. And that just, 
to me, yes, it underscores how important and how vital it is to being alive. And human beings aren't the only ones that create sounds and percussive things for enjoyment. Mm. You know, birds will do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whales and dolphins, you know, that there's... It, it it goes across species. There's there's a a need for that. I think I feel like it's just part of part of the whole creation. Music is essential. Absolutely, I'm with you 100. percent You reminded me that I have a record, a couple of records. One was like whale sounds. One was just rain and and thunder. You know that. Oh yeah. Sonic kind of like relaxation. There's something to that. It's not the cure for life. I mean, not the, I've always thought, I could just find the cure for what's mm. ailing me. But it certainly is a wonderful, like, there's something about sound and, the, and a response to nature in a certain way that is restorative, is yeah. healing, and also it just is a uh, good vibe. It's, it's yeah. you know, cool, you know. I love that you know that. And I want to ask you, um, what were the, I'm going to ask you nine questions, but let's, Add three in this. Uh, well, actually, one question <laughs> with three different answers. What were the last three? This tells a little bit about you, I think. The last three shows that you saw. Oh well, the last Look show you I saw. Straight your voice, chair. Yes. You're like, oh well. Let me tell you. Well, let me tell you. The last show was last week. Was it last week? Week before last, I saw um, Howard Jones, Berlin, and uh, Boy George in the Culture Club. Oh my God, where'd you go? Oh, the. Uh, keeps Every changing time the I names. ask you, you're the always... one in Tinley Park. <laughs> you don't really care about <laughs> venues. I mean, I know you do, but you I just... do. And that one just bugs me. It's not the best. Uh, okay. It's yeah. not the best, you know, acoustically. Uh, so that's why I get a little annoyed with it. But they've had some good bands go there. Right. So, um, so yeah, that was that was the last show. Um, show before that, what was it? I know I saw Depeche Mode. That's the one I was thinking you went to. Yes. And then what's the other one? Why am I blanking on this? Wasn't this the one at Andersonville at the at the summer festival? Was that a thing or no? Not I mean, I went to the, I went to Midsummer Fest and they had local bands. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, um, which counts. I mean, I'm it does count. Saying, I mean, you know, local live bands for me. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, absolutely. I'm just. This is the one thing though. I'm I'm really bad at remembering names of things. Yeah. I, I, so local bands, I don't always remember their names, but I will recognize them. Like if I see an advertisement for them, I'll be like, Oh yeah, I know this band. I've right. I've seen them several right. times. Right. You know. Um. But there was one other. I'm trying to remember what it was. Who I saw, but I. It was between May and now. I saw them. Well, I it, when you tell me who you've seen and what you're seeing, it literally my eyes go what? Because I just the again, I love that, and I love that you um, embrace it so much that you have no component. You just say, "Oh, I see." And, you know, some people are very like think they're being judged by who they see. I nah. used to be like that. If I yeah. tell somebody, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, like I was when I was a kid, teenager, it was Kiss was huge, right? So I'd be, I always wanted to see Kiss, but I was always afraid to tell people because. There was two kinds of people in there. Kiss people and people who like, when I was growing up, you know what I mean, who thought that was silly. Don't, that's an example. Yeah. But I um, am going to see Greta Van Fleet. That's right. And I've told you. There's a lot of things to factor in. The size of the seat, it's not a baby seat, you know, so I can sit in fully with my big butt, you know. <laughs> and uh, their last album was a little different, so it's not quite as Led Zeppelin-y. So, um, 
just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Okay, you ready for these nine questions? I am ready as I can be. Uh, tell me one person. This isn't from the nine, so don't count yet. Okay. What is one band or act that you haven't seen that is like your, I wish I could or would have seen that? I wish I could have seen Tina Turner. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. I've seen Prince, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, and that was that was a part of a bucket list that included Tina Turner. Oh. But I never got a chance to see Tina That's Turner. too bad. Okay. Um, question numero uno. I got to line these up. What is, let's just do this, your perfect concert? Perfect concert? Um, I would say perfect concert will, well, do you want to, want me to say a particular band or just like what need what, what are the components what of has a, been what has been the perfect concert yeah and why um the first time i saw new order at riot fest why i was surrounded by people that had like the same vibe at the same time i had okay. with every song and i really felt like the lead singer was really singing to us okay um, and it was just this convergence of flow, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. It was a convergence of flow. It was the right temperature, the right level of volume. It was played at just the right pace. And I felt in sync and, and, and that interconnectivity with the people around me. It was just perfect. It's a natural high. It was exactly. It's just yeah. like you couldn't create this. It's just you organically all get to this place. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Yeah. What is the worst concert you've ever been to? Um, I can't remember the year, but my favorite band, Depeche Mode, the worst concert at the same, cannot remember the name of place in Tinley Park. It was at a point in time when David Gahn was, um, going through a real hard time with his substance use and his voice was shot. It was awful. Oh man. He could not reach the range that he normally could. And he also, I mean, I don't know if he was intoxicated, but he, you know, he dances. He's not, he's not a dancer, but mm -hmm. he usually can keep a rhythm. Mm -hmm. He wasn't able to keep his rhythm and people left that's a People really left. bad sign. That's a very you bad sign. You pay a sign. lot of money to see somebody like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I stayed because I'm committed to Depeche Mode. And a lot of musicians go through, you know, all different kinds of things. And, and I, this is you. Yeah. When you say you talk to somebody on the phone and you're committed to stay, give them that space. You did that for Depeche Mode. I and did. Yes. That's you. right. Yep. Says so much. What is... What does your apartment need? Apartment need? Yeah, Another room. Need? Another room. What does your family need? A house cleaner. Let <laughs> <laughs> me something they have one sitting right in front of me. <laughs> Not very good at it. <laughs> uh, okay, you ready for this one? What does Chicago need on August, in August 2023? What does Chicago need? Chicago needs love. Chicago needs respect. We keep getting dissed. 
and we're an amazing city. We have problems. Everybody has problems. I, I cannot find anybody in this world who can say one particular city has all of its problems solved. People are born, people die. People treat each other res with respect. People kill people. It's going to happen. You know what? You know how I know that's true? Because the Bible said it's true. Right. Cain kills Abel. <laughs> right. We're right off the head. Let's go. Let's just that's start murdering brothers and sisters. Right? Right. But, but I feel like there's just so much here that people don't really understand. And I think also what we don't understand about ourselves you know, kind of perpetuates the divide that can happen here. And I think we, you know, we need, we need love and respect. Dig it. I dig that response. You have so many hobbies very quickly now. Rate them by the ones you love the most to the ones that are great. Seven, seven. Seven. Let's go. Do I Number have one. seven? Oh, I know you do. I'll throw them in there. <laughs> um. So I'm rating like, to my best at the bottom one or highest top? The highest about okay um cosplay um art making no switch that just music listening okay art making um gaming gaming that's another thing we didn't talk about you have amazing you guys came over brought games one time like you mm -hmm. had the, every game ever created i think i think we do that was awesome just about we could probably open up our own shop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else do I do? You know, when you ask the question, then you're right. like, what am I doing? Well, I know you've told me that you've done Civil War reenactments. Oh, reenacting. Like, That's what I mean. Yeah. You're like a Renaissance woman. You're like, I'll do anything. I, I haven't done that in a few years. But you did. But I did. I did. I mean, I've been doing it since I was 19. Sheesh. Yeah. Okay. So, as you know, when I, I had a kid, we did it for a little bit. Um, my kid has autism, so like some of the loud sounds and things are too much for her. The so cannons we don't. going oh, off. Oh, yeah. Cannons, sure would... muskets. Oof. Yeah. Although yeah. she she likes to view it from far away, doesn't like to be in it. Mm. But I mean, I would say, you know, pre COVID, it probably would be somewhere in the middle, maybe, okay. maybe a five. Um, now it's probably a little bit lower. But I respect it as a hobby. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what else? Um, photography. Mm. So I take that. It's a bit different from what I do with the rest of my visual arts because I've never been trained in photography. Mm -hmm. um, so it's my own little hobby that I've, I cultivated. And it was um, my biggest coping skill as a part of my routine for after work that I go and take pictures to decompress from the day. Wow. Yeah. So many. I want to, I know that you can add one now as a professional pancake organ maker. Yes, pancake organ maker. I'll make a <laughs> brain, a lung, a gallbladder. You know, on Halloween, those would really go like, you know, oh, hot cakes. Hot cakes. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite time of the day, Freddie? Evening. Why? Um, I feel more myself. It takes me a while to get my brain going in the morning. Um, and then I start to get into the rhythm in the afternoon. By the end of the day, I feel more like myself. Dig it. If you had to be eaten by a monster, which one would you choose? Come on, serious question here. If I had to be eaten by a monster? Yeah. Um, 
So this is going to be weird. <laughs> the question is weird. The so. question is weird. Um, so there, you're familiar with Star Trek. I am. And familiar with the original series. I am. Um, so there's this thing that lives in a mine called a Horta. And actually, it's a, it's a big blob. It was the way they <laughs> made it look like a man under a rug. <laughs> it was just really... Special effects had the special effects ways were, to go. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it actually, it was a mother of these eggs that it was depositing everywhere, but people were mining those eggs as a valuable resource, right. and it was, was hurting her. Um, so she would attack people and consume them and turn them into like acid um and i just always just found it kind of kind of neat like i felt for her well yeah and you know like if i had to sacrifice myself for her to protect her little eggs then i would do that <laughs> and like i said this was going to be weird no it's a great answer what i find with these questions is the weirder they are, sometimes the more they reveal about us. I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah. Because you're not thinking. You're just answering it. And, it really, and then a lot of times we talk later and someone say, you know, that question interesting. Remind me of my grandfather. I'm like, what? So, <laughs> okay. What is cool? What is cool? The An actual thing or what does it mean to be cool? Yeah. It's cool to be cool. Cool is smooth cool is i've got this cool is i don't have this but i can make you think i've got it mm, that's an awesome answer love that smooth i like that okay you are appointed by the united nations to put together a world peace concert and you have to have one band remember genre one would be country and western, this won't be every. One would be hip hop, one would be rock, one would be uh, all the different genres. Let's just pick five, any, any five. Do they have to be alive? No. Okay. Um, country, I would have Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. Hip hop, I would have Karis One. Um, rock? Def Leppard. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, let's see. Jazz. I mean, I played it with our breakfast. I love Coltrane. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of so somebody from today. The charts today. Is today, there, yeah. If you had to bring somebody, I, I can. If only... I had to bring somebody from today, in all the genres. Now you're asking me to remember names of people, and mm. I'm not good at. Um, <sighs> country. I don't even know. I don't follow country as much anymore. I don't the know. The new country is really the pop. new country. Yeah, and I just I'm not. Yeah, I'm a big fan either. Not a big fan. Um. Oddly enough, I'm for pop. I might say Ed Sheeran. It's a good choice. I'm not the biggest fan, but the appeal and the sound. Um, Ghost. You know Ghost? No. 
should I? You, you always should. do this. You always say somebody's name. Uh, he's the founder of Chicago House Music. I'm like, well, no. Oh. I, how am I supposed to? You're like, you don't know, blah, blah, blah. I love, I love your like little uh, nerdy judgment of me. What it's, it? No, no. It's more like, it's really more like, oh, here's an opportunity. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's not a judgment. It's like, yay, an I opportunity. Um, Ghost is uh, kind of a hard rock. Ghost. Ghost. See, you know. I know now. I love Ghost. Yeah. For some reason, I was thinking like Ghostface Killer or somebody like that. Oh. I thought you were do- you were referencing a hip hop guy that I wouldn't know. Oh but gosh, Ghost. No. I love Ghost. Yeah. They got a new album coming out. I'm looking forward. They to it. did. The last one was. It was okay. I love the other two though. They yeah. Two before. Great and, answer. Um, Kendrick Lamar. He's amazing. I love Kendrick Lamar. I am not a fan, but I respect that he's amazing. Yeah. Good, nice choice. You know who I bring in there? Miley Cyrus. Oh, Miley Cyrus is awesome. I'm just kidding. No, I think as a person, I think she's awesome. Well, I think she's very uh, representative of this our time and people, young people. Yeah. I think oh, yeah. she kind of like just there's something about her. I I like how she's and she's still like inventing herself, um, but that she's bold to do that. She'll do it. Yeah. I'm telling you. I've seen her. I, oh, yeah. I've listened to her. Yeah. Got to give her credit for whatever it is she's got. I don't even know how I would say it, but <laughs> uh, I actually like that flowers. I will bring you, or whatever. That's what, Buy me flowers. Isn't that what it is? I, I will it buy is. me flowers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't say the name, Eric, just shut up. Okay. So, um, one word answer. What did each of these ages, so times of your life, so mean to you with one word? Five years old. Hmm. Trying to remember five. Uh, curious. Curious. Yeah. Twelve. Oh, gosh. At twelve, I. Um, Self centered. Eighteen. One word is hard for me. I'm a wordy person. Um, ambitious. Thirty. Tired. And today. Right now. Um, intentional. Hmm. Very interesting. Last question: Would you rather have a magic donkey or twenty thousand dollars in cash? A magic donkey. I'll be amused. <laughs> well, uh, what I'm surprised nope. is you didn't ask what is its magic. I don't I, care. I know. I can tell that you're just <laughs> like, hmm. I mean, it's... And this ma- goes, believe it or not, this goes back to when you were five, when you said curious. Yeah. You didn't even ask what it is. You're just curious. And so I'm just curious, yeah. That says a lot about you. All right. Well, <laughs> listen, we're finished today. I want to thank you for bringing it. Thank you. I mean, you brought this today. I felt kind of like I was a part of you expounding, and I didn't do much to bring it out, which was wonderful. You know, I just was uh, so impressed with your your whole story because I, I think because I know you and have seen the product of what you do, it brings me um, enlightenment hmm. and peace and like. 
It also confirms some things about the way I deal with people and helps me. Like I say, these are always like, I realize that, and I think one of the things I've picked up in the last year is I don't have all the answers. And I sometimes struggle with not being able to help people that way because they might turn away. And I hate to see people turn away in desperation or despair. But the reality is that's where it comes from. Hmm. If we have enough despair, because in my life it is, you know, you have to be careful with people because we don't ever want to lose people to suicide mm -hmm. or whatever. But again, there's only a certain amount we can control. And one of the things you've taught me, by the way, is that people have a baseline. People have lives. We do not step in and we will do that in an emergency. But it's also this uh, knowledge and like that other people have to go up and take that on. We just can only do so much. Yeah. So appreciate that. And I appreciate you bringing the fun and the energy and the coolness. And I think it's a really good picture of you. And I hope people listening really get a good picture of um, what it's like to be on this planet and to be open to others and to ourselves as you have. I think it's a great, you like, we should make a little, you should make a little um, Hasbro collectible Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie the music freak. Freddie the all those things. Uh, it'll be like a bobblehead with interchangeable heads. See, that this is the creativity part. It's right there. <laughs> it just naturally came out of you. Yeah, but let's split the head. Never would have thought it. All right. Well, thanks for being with the show. Well, I thank appreciate you. that. We're doing a uh, knuckle sandwich thing. You didn't see that online, but thanks for being with us today. And we also have this little thing where we do, I wish you could see this. We do a little rock and roll devil horns and we intertwine them and go, which just makes the day go better. It does. All right. Well, thanks, Freddie, so much. And we probably will have to have you back because there's a lot of enriching things in your life. And a year from now, you might be on stage with Depeche Mode. You need to tell us how that went. I would love that. I mean, you just seem to have that, like you jump on stage and go, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. It's great to see you. Thanks great so to much. see you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Looking forward to another. All right. Everybody was gone. I don't bet like I used to. I used to spend five to six thousand dollars a game. Right on your street, yeah, she's getting a divorce. Oh no, if I want to be here, there's a lot of brutes. Bear down. Bears. Hey, Freddie, I'm at the tailgate at Soldier's Field. I wanted to get your song in. I was up all night last uh, night writing it. So uh, uh, thanks for the podcast. Thanks for your time at NAMI. Uh, we're going to miss you greatly. The citizens of Chicago will miss you greatly. And uh, I sit back, relax, and uh, here's your song. Goodbye. Okay. So, uh, goodbye. Hey, hey. All right, boys. Stay close. I'm going to get you guys some shoulder pads and beer. Hey, don't touch that guy. Stay away from him.